Hey, welcome back, everyone. As you uh, find your seat, make sure you find your Bible. Turn to Daniel chapter 8 as we continue our journey through this amazing book of Daniel. First half of the book, first six chapters, seven chapters, uh, six, dealing with the, the historical nature of Daniel's life what he experienced there as an exile in Babylon. And now, as we have entered chapter 7 and 8, and all the way up through chapter 12, dealing with the prophetic nature, where God spoke visions to Daniel. So we are in Daniel chapter 8 this morning. So we're going to read this together, it's 27 verses, but it's, again, I, like so many of these passages, I think it's important for us to, to read them and to get them into our hearts before we begin to study them. So Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we'll have it up on the screen if, <clears throat> if you'd like to follow that way. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, After the one that appeared to me the first time, referring to the one in chapter 7, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan the citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing between the, excuse me, beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no beast could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, referring to Jerusalem and Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down." Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to, to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one that said, excuse me, another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly uh, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. 
Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his coming, he shall cause the seat to prosper under his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human hand. And the mean, excuse me, the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days afterward. I arose and went about the king's business, but I was astonished by the vision. But no one understood it. Lord, thank you for your word as we have read it, and we trust, as always, God, that you will bring understanding to us and help us to understand the significance of these things for us today and the time and the place where we live. Lord, your word is forever. The flower falls off, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we believe and receive it this morning as it truly is the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's always challenging when we are going through these prophetic portions of Scripture because there's a few things going on. One, first of all, we need, we need to understand it as much as possible. Second of all, as is true with all Scripture when we are teaching or reading it, we want to hear God's voice speaking to us in it. But at the same time, we also are looking at it and saying, <clears throat> what does this mean to me today? How do I apply this to my life? And I, hopefully we will answer some of those questions as we go through today. But I want to begin by reminding you of something today that I said last week, and it, it's this, that the Bible, this book we hold in our hands, is a collection of God-inspired holy writings. This is the voice of God to, to not only his people, the Jews, and to those who would become Christians, but it's also his word to everyone, because these words will be spoken and read to all those, even those who deny Christ, who have no love for God, who have nothing but hatred for God, these words still apply. These words apply 100% to everybody on the face of planet Earth. So this book is a collection of 66 books written by 40 authors across three different continents over a period of greater than 1,500 years. And yet, these are the Holy Scriptures And the things that are being spoken of by this man, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, the man Daniel, are applying to things that have yet to happen. And we're 2,600 years down the road from when the Lord and the angels spoke to Daniel these things. So there are things that have happened, but there are things that are yet to happen. And I think that's what we need to listen to. That's the applicability of the word to us today. So as we get into this chapter... Your Bible may have various titles in there. Remember, these titles are injected by uh, the editors of the, the Bible. You know, if you look on the back, it'll tell you who published it, Thomas you know, Nelson or Crossway or whomever. Uh, those publishers put those notes in there. Uh, so those are not scripture, but mine has a title at the top that says, Daniel's Vision of the Ram and the Goat. So as we get into this, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, if you go back to chapter 7, it says in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So we are still 
in this period between chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Daniel. We're now two years later than what we saw in chapter 7. So God gave Daniel that vision in chapter 7. And remember in chapter 7, as we went over this last week, this vision, this prophecy that God gave Daniel is a, a far-reaching and, a, uh, and an overarching prophecy that affects everything from what happened to Daniel during that time all the way to the end of the age, to the end of the time of the tribulation. And so today we get sort of a, a dialed-in, a zoomed-in view just a little bit more here in chapter 8. So two years later, God gives him more. And I think one of the interesting things as we go through and we read these these passages of prophecy is that just as God gave this in a progressive sort of way to Daniel, um, you know, God works that way with us, doesn't he? If think, think about as you read this, and I hope you'll take some time this week to read 7 through 12 all the way through, just read straight through it. But to have all of that revealed to you in one moment at one point in time, it would be too much. Even David, the psalmist, said in the Psalms, he says, Lord, you know, stop, your, your person, your character, your nature, when you reveal yourself to me, it's too much for me. I, these things are too high. These are things that I can't attain to. And so when God reveals his truth, as in this way, this prophetic truth, and Daniel here, as he, as he did in chapter 7, he says here at the end of chapter 8, he's like, I'm troubled, I'm bothered by these things. What do these things mean? I want to understand them. And I hope that our attitude is the same as Daniel's, that we want to understand these things. So in verse 1, the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, two years earlier, chapter 7. We know that um, King Belshazzar's time, you know, has a specific period of time and uh, we know when we read chapter 5, that at the end of chapter 5, that handwriting on the wall, the many, many tekel you farsen, you know, king, you have been judged by God, your, your life, your works have been put in the scales and the balances and, and they have been found wanting and your kingdom will now be taken from you. And in that moment, at the end of that evening, as Daniel was there interpreting the handwriting on the wall for him, God brought the Medes and the Persians in and they they fulfilled that prophecy of chapter 2. Remember, we looked at chapter 2 where God first gave the vision to King Nebuchadnezzar. So these things are all interrelated. They're intertwined. And in that vision, God laid out the kingdoms that would, would succeed King Belshazzar. Excuse me, King Nebuchadnezzar. So in verse 2, I saw in the vision... So that Daniel's saying, this isn't a dream, this is a vision. So this is something where, where God is, you know, in the Spirit somehow revealing this to him. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the capital. Now, Daniel was likely up in Babylon. Shushan, the capital, was down further. Shushan would later become the capital of Persia. But God is transporting him in this dream, just as God did to other prophets, to, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah and other prophets that he spoke to, and he gave them this vision. So in this vision, he's translating Daniel. He's allowing him to see down to this city, Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw the vision that, uh, in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Now, Shushan, the capital, or also called Susa, is spoken of in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Esther. And we find in those two uh, books of the Bible, which came after Daniel, chronologically speaking, uh, Nehemiah and Esther and her uncle Mordecai were there in that same city. So uh, Daniel's being given a vision of something that's going to take place or affect that city. And he says in verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. So this river you lie, if you uh, could look at an ancient map, what you would find is that this city, Shushan, the capital, which was not the capital of anything yet at the time of the vision, had two rivers sort of running on either side of them. Uh, think of a city between two rivers. 
And then this river Uli, which was not a river, but actually a channel that connected those two rivers to go through the city. So this, this channel, this river Uli is what he's seeing. So God's giving him some very specific markers. And he says, while he was there, he, uh, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So he's seeing this ram and it's like he's seeing the horns grow in sort of fast, you know, fast forward motion. Uh, rams are those, those beasts, if you've ever seen them, they have kind of a curly horn. They're not like a, antlers, they're more like a big curly horn. And so there's something bizarre about this beast. He sees this ram and he sees this one horn come up and sort of grow and curl. But then he sees a second one grow, but as it grows, it grows in sort of a grotesque way where it grows up higher and it, and it curls around. So this is all painting a picture of something that's going to happen. And in verse four, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great." So he's seeing this, this, this beast. And remember, he's in the Middle East. He's in what would, would be called a modern-day Baghdad, Babylon. And so if you, if you pull up a map and you look at it and you see Iraq and Iran and you see the juxtaposition of those two, you can understand that what he's seeing is the, the city of Shushan was probably down in what is modern-day Iraq, excuse me, Iran, but he's up in, our, in Iraq and so he sees all of these things happening. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of things I want to read here because I think they can clarify to us better than me just uh, speaking. Uh, it wasn't a stretch to use a ram to represent the Medo-Persian Empire, which, as we go along, he gives us the interpretation later. That's what they, that ram represented. Um, the, it wasn't a stretch to use that ram uh, or... Amanius Marcellinus, a fourth century historian, states that the Persian ruler bore the head of a ram as he stood at the head of his army. So what these generals would do often, you know, they might have war paint painted on to that kind of a thing, but in this particular situation and in that time, often they would take the head of an animal and basically stuff it, but then put it on their head like a helmet, and maybe you've seen this in some of the movies that portray ancient battles. And so they did this as a symbol and a strength of power, and they did this to sort of strike fear in the people that they were going up against. And so that uh, these heads of armies would do this and, and put a ram's head on their own head was not uncommon at all. We know at, the, at this time as the... Uh, the Persian and the, the Medo-Persian army was coming forward. There's Cyrus the king. Uh, this is a man who was prophesied of uh, many times by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And it's a fascinating study to go look at that. We don't have time to do that this morning. But Cyrus, king of Persia, is the man who conquered Babylon. Centuries before Cyprus, excuse me, Cyrus appeared on the scene, the prophet Isaiah called him by name and even called him God's shepherd. It was Cyrus whom God chose to defeat the Babylonians and permit the Jews to return to their land. Just as Babylon was identified with the lion and the eagle, Persia was identified with the ram. The two horns symbolize the Medes and the Persians, the Persians being the higher or the stronger of the two. Cyrus and his armies did indeed push westward, northward, and southward, and defeated their enemies, taking Libya, Egypt, and all of Asia Minor, and moving as far as India, creating the largest empire ever in the ancient East until the time of Alexander the Great. And once his conquests were consolidated, he attacked Babylon and took it in 539 BC. Cyrus, however, was kind to those uh, to whom he took captive, and he permitted the Jews to return to their land to rebuild the temple and to restore the nation. And I've got a ton of scripture references that talk about that. He also allowed them to take with them the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. In other words, they were being returned. So this vision of this ram is the 
the country, the rulership, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. But let's go on. In verse 5, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So this goat, as it's being described here, and we're told later, is the king of Greece. And at that time, it was Alexander the Great. And so as Alexander was coming, he had grown with power during this time, that Daniel is receiving this vision, Greece was not a, not a power at all. They were just a small country with people. And so again, uh, 200 years before this ruler, Alexander the Great, and Greece would rise up to be sort of a superpower, God reveals this to Daniel. And sometimes you might say, well, you know, just as you've probably said to people, sometimes they're telling you something and you say, why are you telling me this? You ever said that to somebody when they were speaking to you? And here, we could ask the question, and maybe even Daniel asked the question, we don't know, but Lord, why are you revealing these things to me? Why are you telling me these things? Well, let's hold that question and continue to move forward. So this portrayal is that Daniel sees Greece as an angry goat who runs so swiftly that his feet don't even touch the ground. This large protruding horn represents Alexander the Great, who led the armies of Greece from victory to victory and extended his empire even beyond what Cyrus had done with the Persian army. But the horn was broken, for Alexander died in Babylon in June of 323, and at the age of 33, his vast kingdom was divided among his four leaders, which we'll talk about in a minute, and it symbolized the four horns that grew up. So we have these very distinct pictures, and as a reminder for all of us, when we're considering prophecy, prophecy often has a near and a far fulfillment. So the near fulfillment is what's happening with these countries of uh, Babylon and Persia, Media, and now Greece. But the Lord, as we looked at last week, has a purpose in revealing these things. He's going to show us Uh, that we can see in history, literally extra-biblical history, that these things were literal, they happened, they were fulfilled, but they also, as the angel tells him when he brings the interpretation, these things are also for the time of the end. So these things that truly happened, they're being used symbolically to also talk about what's going to happen in the last days. So verse 9, and out of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great from the south, excuse me, toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. In Daniel's prophecy, and only in Daniel's prophecy, do we have this referral to this little horn. In fact, if you were to read, get into the whole prophecy thing, you know, just study prophecy and read prophecy, you'll begin to see these prophecy buffs begin to talk about the little horn of Daniel. And so we had that last week. We're having it again this week uh, as we consider it. And this little horn has a meaning and an application in that time, but also it speaks of what's coming in the future. So the Greek empire rose suddenly with great speed, and it did rise up quickly. People didn't see this superpower brewing and coming up. And then as uh, Alexander the Great began to lead and began to conquer, we are told that this goat was running with such speed that he was not even touching the ground. And so Alexander the Great was this great horn. The Greek empire 
forged this famous war with the Medo-Persian Empire. They overtook it. And if you could defeat the Medo-Persian Empire, which is uh, a very vicious empire, then you had to be really even more vicious than they were. So this Greek in, uh, empire hated not only the Medo-Persian Empire, but they hated everyone with this furious power, moved with rage, as we are told there. Some of the greatest and fiercest battles of ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians. The Greek empire conquered the Medo-Persian empire. And notice he said there that no one could deliver the ram from his hand. The reign of the notable leader of the Greek empire was suddenly cut short. That is the long, the large horn was broken. And after the end of Alexander the Great's reign, the Greek empire was divided, divided among four rulers. So this is telling us what was about to happen within the next 200 years. And notice in verse 10, it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. This is referring here in the near term, uh, the hosts of heaven and stars are sometimes used prophetically to speak of men, to speak of nations. But they're also, it's also used at times to speak of angels, to speak of the heavenly host. And so we believe here in the near term, it's referring to men, but in the long term, it's referring to what's happening in the heavenly realm. So hold that verse in mind. He exalted, verse 11, himself as, the high, as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So we'll talk about that in just, just a moment. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So we're now being given an idea that these foreign rulers would come in and not only just conquer kingdoms, but now they would turn their their wrath on the Jews, on God's people. And when it says that they're going to come in and to put an end to the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, they're talking about uh, going into the temple or the synagogue or wherever they're doing these things. And of course, uh, they uh, were being sent back by King Cyrus, the Jews, from the Babylonian exile to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to reestablish worship. That's what the book of Ezra is about. And then the book of Nehemiah is about another wave of refugees being sent back and they went back to rebuild the wall after the temple itself had been rebuilt. So this is all before Alexander the Great comes and, and works against them. So it's interesting, isn't it, that these rulers set their sights on tiny Jerusalem, on the temple of God, on the worship of God, and they want to disrupt the worship of God. That's their, their desire. That's their idea. And it says he exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Now you're getting the idea that this is no ordinary man. This man has an ego so big that he wants to fight everyone on earth and in heaven. So now we're sort of getting into this symbolism of uh, what's coming down the road in, in several thousand years at this point. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So he wanted to go in and to wipe out the Jewish temple and the Jewish form of worship. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn. So he was given great power. And here's something to note, and it makes us a little uneasy, but we have to understand it. God allowed this. God said that this was going to happen. He told them beforehand that this was going to happen. Now, let's just lift ourselves out of this scenario for a moment and go back to how God prophetically spoke to his people all throughout the Old Testament. And he told them over and over and over, because of your sin, if you won't repent and if you won't return, I'm going to have to judge it. And then after they had uh, defied the Lord for, for 490 years and they didn't observe the laws of the Sabbath, God eventually began saying through all of those prophets, I'm going to have to do something about this. I'm going to send a wicked foreign uh, power to come in and to take you. 
And they're going to take you captive and they're going to become my instruments of judgment in your life. Yes, God's going to even use the heathen, the Gentiles. They're going to become my instrument against you because you will not obey me. And this is the extent to which the disobedience of the children of Israel had forced God to do these things. And so now they're going on looking into the future here and God's allowed them to go back and to reestablish their worship. He said, hey, your time is up and you sort of served your sentence. You've paid your dues. We're going to send you back and we're going to let you repatriate the land and we're going to restore temple worship. And just as they get it all done, then Alexander the Great is allowed to come along and tear it all down again. Why? Ultimately, because they would not follow God. They would not be obedient to God. In my uh, social media uh, feed, I'll say it that way, uh, I've tried, there's algorithms in there and they're always trying to push garbage on you. Um, I try to follow people, you know, pastors and other Christians who are of good report and whatnot. And, and this week, I saw this, uh, this, this man who's a pastor and I'm aware of who he is, I follow him. And I didn't realize that this happened, but some of you may remember the story many years ago now, probably 25 years ago or more, maybe 30. uh, There was this uh, health, wealth, prosperity guy named Jim Baker, Jim and Tammy Baker. Tammy, big, big hair, all that kind of stuff. You saw that. Now, some of you don't know about that, but this guy was what we would call a televangelist. And they had this amazing, you know, ministry. Um, and as the story goes, what happened, they had begun to misuse and abuse people's money. Uh, they were doing all sorts of things. He was having affairs. Uh, it was just, it was the, the worst kind of thing that mars the name of God and the witness of Christ. And he got caught, he got prosecuted. Uh, they got divorced and he went to prison and he got sentenced to some ungodly amount, like three life sentences or something crazy like that. And so... Um, this man was telling about the fact, this pastor, that he had written a book. And I haven't read his book, uh, but, but Jim Baker in prison, you know, because he had basically till the end of his life to rot there, uh, read this book. And this book, you know, as this pastor had just shared what God had put on his heart to write, it touched Jim Baker's heart. So Jim called him and said, would you come and visit me in prison? And so he said, sure. So he went to visit him and he sat there with him and they talked and, and he said, you know, can I ask you a question? This is the pastor speaking to Jim Baker. He said, yeah. He said, so you were a minister of God, right? You were a servant of God and you did all these things, horrible things. He said, can you help me understand where you went wrong? Where did you go off track? Where did you go off the rails? At what point in your life did your walk with Christ just go sour? And here's what he said, and that's why I'm telling you this story, because it's relevant to what we're doing here. He said, you know, I never never stopped loving Jesus. I always loved Jesus and had a respect for him. He says, but how can you you say that (laughs) in light of what you've done? He said, because... He said, I did love Jesus. He said, I never stopped loving Jesus. He says, my problem was I lost sense of the holiness of God. There was no fear in my life. I I, I loved Jesus, but I didn't fear God. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, whoa. If that's what can happen in our lives, that we can go to church and raise our hands and say, I love Jesus, but we don't fear God. And that's what allowed him to do the things he did. Now, just to finish the story, many of you may know the story, but he did come back to Christ. He repented and God actually let him out of jail. They, they were able to, you know, stay the sentence and he got out with, uh, I don't know, five or eight years or something like that out of all the heavy sentence. But when I'm reading this passage here about Daniel, we're reading these prophecies So much of it is about that. It's about the holiness of God. The reason they're in the situation they're in, the reason God is having to deal with them the way he's dealing with them is because they had lost sense 
of the holiness of God. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So, taking a Babylonian calendar, which is 360 days, doing the math, this is like six and a third years. And no matter how you do it, there's people who want to play with the math and all this stuff here. All of that to say that when we go back and we look at history, there was a period of time in, uh, that this, this ruler, this evil ruler, reigned. And the worship of God was disrupted first for 70 years as they were sent to exile, now for another six and a third years. And I don't think there's anything significant about this 2,300 days. It doesn't seem to have forward prophetic significance to anything. It doesn't match any of the other things that are spoken of. But this was something that God specifically allowed during that time. Now, as we talked about those four kingdoms, those, those other four horns of, of, of Greek descent, there was a man, this ferocious man, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Maybe you've heard of him. If you haven't, I want to read a little bit about him because this man, and we, we talked about the goat uh, running so fast that he was going across the surface of the earth and his feet weren't even touching. Uh, this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, was kind of the guy who became the most prominent one and who fulfilled the most vicious of things upon people as he became a ruler and a conqueror. The ruler of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, was the ruler of Syria from 175 to 163 BC and known as the cruelest, one of the cruelest tyrants in history. Antiochus gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means illustrious manifestation. This is how he named himself. For he claimed to be a revelation or an epiphany of the gods. So he's saying he became a an incarnate manifestation of the gods, not the God, but of the gods. He even had the word theos or God put on the coins minted with his features on it and his features um, on the coins over time came to look more like the Greek God of Zeus. He had a passionate desire to turn the Jews into good Greeks. He wanted to make them live his way and, and accept his culture. Does that sound familiar to anybody? pressure upon us to make us accept their culture. One of his first acts was to drive out the high priest Onias, an ardent Jew, and replace him with Jason, a patron of the Greeks. But Jason was replaced by Menelaus, who actually purchased the priesthood, so you can see the corruption, believing a rumor that the king was dead, and Jason attacked Jerusalem only to learn that Antiochus was very much alive. The angry king attacked Jerusalem and plundered the temple. And in 168, this is all verifiable history, he sent an army of 20,000 men under Apollonius to level Jerusalem. They entered the city on the Sabbath. They murdered most of the men and took the women and children as slaves. And the remaining men fled to the army of the Jewish leader, Jewish, excuse me, Judas Maccabeus. But the king wasn't satisfied. So he issued an edict that there would be one religion in his realm, and it wouldn't be the Jewish religion. He prohibited the Jews from honoring the Sabbath, practicing circumcision, and obeying the Levitical dietary laws. And he climaxed his campaign on December 14th of 168 by replacing the Jewish altar with an altar to Zeus and sacrificing a pig on it, thus the abomination of desolation. We'll talk about that in a moment. And any Jew found possessing a copy of the law of Moses was slain. Let me put it in a modern way. If you found possessing a copy of the Bible, you were killed. Uh, let's see, I lost my place. Um, Jerusalem was eventually delivered by the courageous exploits of Judas Maccabeus and his followers on December 14, 165, so three years later. The temple was purified, the altar of burnt offerings restored, and Jewish worship once again restored. It is this event that the Jewish people celebrate as the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. Antiochus went mad while in Persia and died in 163. 
So in this verse that we just read that said the sanctuary shall be then cleansed, this specific prophecy that Daniel is receiving is 350 years before the rule and the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. So what's the, what's the point here before we get to the interpretation? That God laid all this stuff out very specifically. So we've talked about the near and the far fulfillment. God gave to Daniel to pass along for posterity's sake what was going to happen to the kingdoms that were coming down the line and how God was going to use them as his, his instruments of judgment. Then in verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision... And I was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So we have the first appearance of this angel Gabriel in the Bible. And this voice that spoke, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision, we presume is the voice of the Lord speaking to him. Daniel was seeking, we're told, the understanding and the meaning. And so God granted the answer to that prayer to give him the understanding and the meaning. Fun fact about Daniel, excuse me, Gabriel, excuse me. uh, Gabriel's name means man of God. Uh, The other angel we see named in the Bible is Michael, the archangel. His name means who is like God. Gabriel, when we see him in the Bible... He's often the messenger of God, bringing something to people. Here in Daniel chapter 8 and again in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel will be the one who brings a specific word to Daniel. And then we see him appear again all the way in the the Gospel of Luke, where he is the one who comes and he... uh, in Luke 1.19, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings, talking about the birth of Christ. <clears throat> now in the sixth month of uh, the in the sixth month of Luke 1.26, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So Gabriel coming and bringing these words. He's the messenger of God. Michael, we'll see him in a moment as well in Daniel chapter 10. But Michael, the archangel, he comes, uh, he also comes to deliver some messages. But as we read about him, uh, he was one who was more doing battle. He was sort of the warrior angel. So in Daniel chapter 10, chapter 12, and Jude uh, says, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses... And then in Revelation chapter 12, 7, and war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. So Gabriel is the messenger. Michael is the, the, the warrior. So in a, back to our story in Daniel eight seventeen. So he came near where I stood. This is Gabriel the angel. And when he came, I was afraid and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So he's saying, don't focus on the near end stuff. Again, look beyond it. Look to the time of the end. And as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. I imagine not so much that he fell asleep, but that he was overwhelmed by the the nature of everything that is being shown to him. And he said, look, for I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of, notice, the indignation. You want to underline or circle that in your Bible in Daniel 9, excuse me, 8, 19. uh, In the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. So he's pointing him to something that's happening way yet distant in the future. The ram which you saw, so now he kind of comes back and he says, the ram which you saw having the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, as we talked about earlier. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So those four horns that arise out of Greece will not be as powerful individually as Greece was as a collective. 
So when Alexander uh, died, he did not divide the empire, excuse me, the empire among his four generals, but his four generals divided it among themselves. Uh, by force after his death, the four generals, and I'm just going to tell you because they were named in history, Cassander ruling over Greece and its region, Lysimachus ruling over Asia Minor, Seleucus ruling over Syria and Israel's land, and Ptolemy ruling over Egypt. So again, historical figures, those things really happened. They were fulfilled. Daniel 8, 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. So now looking beyond all of that, people look at Antiochus Epiphanes as we just talked about him, And they see him as a type of the Antichrist. But remember, the angels just said, this is a time of the future. So as we read this, it sure seems to us, having read the book of Revelation, you know, we've, we've got the end here for us in our hand, that this king, this having fierce features who understands sinister schemes, I doubt it, language like that has ever been used to describe anybody. But this is describing the Antichrist. Uh, that this, and by the way, I asked you to circle or underline the indignation. That's a term that's only used to refer to the, the end time trouble. In the Old Testament, there are different names given to the, the end time trouble, which is the tribulation. Uh, some of the prophets have called it the time of Jacob's trouble or the day of the Lord or the indignation, those are just three. And so this is referring to the time of the end. Verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled all of those in the near term. But we know as we look into the future and as we read what's happening in the book of Revelation, when the Antichrist comes, he will at first come in deception. He will come and sign this peace treaty with Israel. We're going to get into this in the next uh, two weeks in chapter 9. He will come and and pretend to be their friend and that first three and a half years will, will be good things and he you know, makes this treaty with them and declares peace in the Middle East and all of that. But then in that three and a half year mark, he will do what Antiochus Epiphanes sort of enacted in a literal sense where he went in and he set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig in the most holy place. Yes, it was an abomination, but it was not the abomination that causes desolation which Jesus spoke of when he said when the Antichrist comes in Matthew chapter 24, that he would come and bring the abomination which causes or brings about desolation. And that's what triggers the second three and a half years of the time of the tribulation. It's interesting, one person said, just trying to keep things in perspective for us, that God's plans for Israel will be fulfilled no matter how much the Gentile nations may oppose his chosen people. And we have to keep that in mind because this turbulent time that we're living in throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people, is because of their disobedience. And even all throughout the New Testament, we are pointed to the fact that because of their disobedience, that their hearts were hardened and that their eyes and their minds were blind. In fact, Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians that even until that very day, he says, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, that they don't even understand it. But I would like to refer you to a passage to read. Um, I was going to read it, but I, it's going to take a bit of time. It's in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. And in that passage, God is talking about how he is going to one day restore Israel. Now keep in mind, that's in the New Testament. And it is yet future for when God would restore his people, that he would renew their, his covenant with them. 
So in verse 25, as we continue, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. That's a unique name of Jesus. But he shall be broken without human means. In other words, God will break him. So when it says that he shall cause the seat to prosper, let me read this to you. Both the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes in the past and the Antichrist in the future, they're both marked by deceit. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then it says, he shall exalt himself in his heart. The coins of Antiochus Epiphanes were inscribed with that title of Theos Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. So he saw himself in that way. He portrayed himself that way to the people. But we also know that the coming Antichrist will also exalt himself so that he will one day sit as God in the temple. That will be his desecration. That will be his abomination. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 tells us specifically that one day he will exalt himself as God. We are also told in this passage we've just read, there's a phrase that says broken without human means. History tells us that Antioch's Epiphanes died of disease, not by the hand of man. So that was the near fulfillment, but in a similar way. No man will defeat the coming Antichrist, but the hand of Jesus will strike him down. And in Revelation 19, we have the account where Jesus takes down the Antichrist. The characteristics in the career of Antiochus Epiphanes parallel those of the Antichrist. So let me just lay this out for you here. Both begin modestly, but they increase in power and in influence. Uh, Both blaspheme God with mouths that speak great things. Both persecute the Jewish people. Both claim to be gods and put images in the temple. Both impose their own religion on the people. Both are opposed by a believing remnant that knows God. Both are energized by the devil and are great deceivers. Both appear to succeed marvelously and seem to be invincible at the time. Both are finally defeated by the coming of a redeemer. In the near term, we talked about that man, Judas Maccabeus, who came in and defeated the Greeks. But also, of course, this points to our Lord, to our Savior, to our King, Jesus Christ, who will one day defeat the Antichrist. And so here in verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. Now this is spoken here, but it will be spoken again later in chapter 12, where the angel will say that to him again. And I, Daniel, verse 27, I fainted and was sick for many days. And afterward, I arose and I went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood. You know, earlier when Daniel got the vision two years prior in chapter seven, he was very perplexed. He was disturbed. He was bothered. And here again, he says the same thing, but he said, I had to, I had to get up. I had to keep going. And I love how one person pointed this out. Daniel didn't let either spiritual mysteries or physical weakness keep him from doing his duty. This shows us that our interest in prophecy should make us more concerned with our king's business, not less concerned about it. He says that because when we study passages of prophecy like this, sometimes there can be a tendency where we pull back and we say, well, what does all that mean anyway? I mean, it's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Again, another person said, Daniel's a good example for students of prophecy to follow. He asked the Lord for explanation. He allowed the Lord to instruct him. But his investigation into God's prophetic program wasn't a matter of satisfying curiosity or trying to appear very knowledgeable before others. He was concerned about his people and the work they had to do on earth. 
So he identified with what he learned that it made him ill. Too many prophetic students don't wait before God for instruction and insight, nor do they feel burdened when they learn God's truth about the future. Rather, they try to display their knowledge and impress people with what they think they know. The whole exercise is purely academic. It's all in the head and never changes the heart. You see, so when God reveals something like this, as he revealed it to Daniel and as he's revealing it to us through his word, we should not walk away saying, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything to me till, till sometime at the end of the tribulation. You see, God tells us these things beforehand for a purpose. Do you realize that nearly 25%, maybe up to 27% of Scripture is prophecy? A fourth of the Bible? So we shouldn't sweep this under the rug and bury our heads. Why, why would God want us to know something before it happens? I mean, isn't this our desire anyway? We want, we want to know this about our lives. God, what's going to happen next week? If I play the lottery, will I win it? For these plans that I have for my life, will... What's going to happen, God? When is this going to happen? And when is that going to happen? Those are the questions we have, but those are the questions God's not going to answer. The question he's going to answer is the only answer we need, which is he will rule, he will reign supreme. In the end, God wins. And he's with us through it all. And so by allowing Daniel to see into the future, and we're just a little bit into it, we've just waded into the shallow end of the pool at this point. Next week, we're going to look at the first portion of chapter 9, probably the first three-quarters or two-thirds. And we're going to look at how all of this affected Daniel. So, so read ahead. As he prayed, as he humbled himself before God, and he's like, God, what does all this stuff mean, and how do I live? And isn't that the question we have with all of this information on prophecy? What do we do with it? It drives Daniel to his knees. And he begins to pray for his people. Then at the end of chapter 9, we have this very specific prophecy that God gives about his, his Messiah, his son. And then in chapters 10, 11, and 12, we're going to have more prophecy, prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy coming to us. And it's all going to get more specific about the time of the tribulation, about the Antichrist. Daniel reveals these things to us because God revealed them to him. And then when we go from Daniel to Revelation, which is what we're going to do, it's going to make such sense to us. It's going to all come together so that we will be prepared. Not that we can be arrogant, as this writer just said. Not that we can boast and say, I know what all of this means. But knowing something of Scripture, knowing what God is speaking, is to draw us closer to Him. It's to drive us to our knees and to not take these things for granted. And as I told that story earlier about Jim Baker that we would not lose our sense of the holiness and the righteousness of God. We need to regain that. We need to regain that in the church. We need to regain that in our personal lives. So I pray that we would do that. The appointed end of time. Can you imagine being the person to whom God chose to reveal all of that up to? Daniel didn't take it lightly and neither should we. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this study. And Lord, use it. Use it in our lives. Speak to us. Minister to us. Show us how this applies, God, to our everyday lives. What difference does it make to us? And God, for one thing, it should surely draw, draw us closer to you and drive us to our knees because these things are surreal. These things are going to happen. And your word is sure, your word is true. Your word will come to pass. There has never been anything that you have spoken that has not uh, already come to pass. And the things that are yet future, we are guaranteed they will come to pass. And so, Lord, we want to, uh, this morning, just as we close, just say, God, reveal to us your glory. Reveal to us your holiness and your righteousness. God, quicken our spirits that we might draw closer to you because of these things. 
And Lord, help us to pray even more fervently. Lord, for certainly understanding these things help us, helps us become more passionate, understanding that the time is short, that the end is near, that we probably don't have as much time as we think we have. And we always have these goals, these things we want to do. But Lord, use prophecy to refine our goals, to refine our thinking, to refine how we live our lives. Use prophecy to give us a sense of urgency about sharing your word with the lost and the unsaved. Use these things, Lord, to create a sense of urgency within us in our prayer, to create a sense of urgency within us in our relationships with others. Thank you, Lord, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.